Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, taking stock at 300. We're celebrating our 300th episode. So in honor of that milestone, we decided to bring back one of the voices you may have heard many times over the last few years. This will be a chance for listeners to get to know a bit about her, as well as the topic that has defined her career here at Tax Notes. If you'd like to hear our 100th and 200th episodes, you can find links to those in the show notes. Our guest, Stephanie Sung, has been covering the OECD's efforts to modernize corporate taxation for nearly a decade. Today, she's here to tell us a bit about herself, how we got where we are at the OECD, and how things are going now. So without further ado, I'm joined now by Tax Notes Chief Correspondent Stephanie Sung. Stephanie, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, great to be here, and I'm very honored. I'm the 300th episode. Yeah, well, I'm so glad that you were able to join us. Uh, could you start off maybe by telling listeners a bit about yourself, how you got here? Well, I started working at Tax Analysts in 2011, and before that, I was just basically floating around. I was kind of just casting about for my next big thing. I was uh, freelancing for various trade publications like Meeting Place Magazine, which is for the meat industry. Um, that's M-E-A-T. I worked at a column in that uh, publication, which was kind of fun. What sort of things did you write for a meat publication? Oh, yeah. So I had this column called um, Category Profile. And so I would take a category of meat and just talk about like the meat trends and like sales numbers and new products. And yeah, it was kind of, it was interesting. You know, occasionally I do a story about, you know, plant safety. Yeah, so a far cry from what we're doing now. I also actually had a very short stint in, well, not a really short stint. It was about six years in fashion, actually. I was a fashion editor for about six years doing freelance for Chicago Magazine. So did a lot of fashion shoots, pulled a lot of samples, handling very expensive merchandise, which I could never afford. I kind of did a whole lot of different things. Oh, I also had a short stint as a a content moderator for Legacy.com which is like Facebook for the deceased. I had a lot of things going on, but text notes was what stuck. Tell me about how things were when you, when you started out here. What was it like going from meat and fashion to reporting about tax? You know, it was unexpected. When I got the call for an interview, I actually thought about maybe declining because I did not think that tax was very interesting <laughs> at the time, <laughs> uh, too, if I'm, I'm going to be really honest with you. But I ended up going to the interview anyway and just uh, thought that everybody was so nice and the company seemed like had a really good mission and uh, sounded like I could grow here. So I went and I'm glad I did. When I first got here, I really did not know what I was doing, if I'm going to be real. <laughs> but, you know, I, I did have journalism training, so that helped a lot in trying to write tax news. And so I actually had relied a lot on my colleagues. Yeah, it was my colleagues helped me a lot to help me understand, you know, the basics of tax. Um, And you basically just learn by doing. You kind of get thrown into the deep end and you just sort of sink or swim. And luckily I swam and and I'm still swimming. What is it like to, you know, to, to look back and think not that many years ago, you knew nothing of tax and suddenly you are one of our most knowledgeable reporters. It feels like I'm like some kind of like superhero. People kind of think it's kind of boring, but I actually I feel like a superhero because I kind of know, you know, something cool that other people are interested in and care about. And I feel a little more confident in myself, I guess, as far as 
my skills, knowledge, my ability to comprehend very complex things. Yeah, it's really taught me a lot about tax and also myself. Every once in a while, I kind of look back and I, I, I imagine what 15-year-old me would think of what I ended up doing. And at some points during the dark times, I have to say, I just don't care. 15-year-old me knew nothing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, 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 don't, I don't know if my 15-year-old self would have really understood what it meant to be what I'm doing now. Like, I guess it would be, I think she would have thought, hey, that's kind of cool. She gets to travel a lot. You know, I get to travel a lot. And I get to meet new people and, you know, I've got friends all over the world now. So it's kind of cool. Well, let's talk about this area that you have been covering for, for a while now. And that has, it seems to have defined your career, the, the OECD's various projects to update corporate taxation. So why don't you talk about how those things got started? Yeah. So actually, when I first started out, I was covering the OECD more generally, in addition to the corporate tax policy work, um, you know, transparency issues and other hot topics at the time. But, you know, this this issue started gaining a lot of steam when they first started out in the BEPS project, uh, the Base Erosion and Profit Shifting project, which a lot of listeners know about. It was 15 actions to try to overhaul the the corporate tax system to, to kind of tighten up the rules, to make it less easy for companies to kind of game the system and aggressively avoid tax might help to just backtrack a little bit. You know, governments have been wrestling with this problem of how to tax digital activities since the 1990s. Uh, the main problem was about how to tax companies that are making money in jurisdictions without traditional permanent establishment or physical presence. And so the Action One report tried to address that, but it really kind of punted on a solution. The only conclusions really they had, the key conclusions they had, was that uh, the digital economy is increasingly becoming the economy itself. And it's difficult to ring fence that economy um, from the rest of the economy for tax purposes. And then the report sort of said, you know, it, it appeared to be more related to the allocation of taxing rights and nexus issues rather than BEPS issues. And that sort of provided the, the groundwork for the, uh, the current project that we're about to talk about here. So tell me a bit about covering this original BEPS 1.0, as no one called it back then. What sort of work were you doing on that? Well, I was covering a lot of consultations, a lot of webcasts, getting opinions from uh, people who just didn't know what to make of it. It was interesting to follow because each action was kind of difficult in its own way. I learned a lot in a relatively short period of time. And it was kind of cool because after the reports came out in October 2015, I was able to go to Lima, Peru, for the G20 finance ministers meeting where they endorsed the reports, which was really interesting. Um, I had never been to a G20 meeting before. It was really cool seeing all these people I covered on a daily basis just walking around. I got to the venue for the press conference and a bunch of G20 ministers wanted to, finance ministers wanted to talk about the best project and more and more ministers wanted to speak. But the stage was only built for only so many, so many ministers. Mm -hmm. So they had to rebuild the entire stage overnight. <laughs> And they actually had to create like a ramp because one of the finance ministers, the German finance minister, was in a wheelchair. So it was kind of cool to see this kind of, you know, scrambling around and trying to preparing for this key moment. And it felt like it was part of history. So I guess moving on from the BEPS project to uh, what we're still wrestling with today, why don't you start us off with just a quick rundown of, of what the two pillars are? I know people have heard this before, but... For any listeners that, that need that refresher, could you tell us about the two pillars? Okay. Yeah. So I just want to give a little bit of background to the lead up to the two pillars. So so the Action 1 reports that have left it to 2020, you know, 
we'll work on the 2020. But the German G20 presidency um, directed the OECD in March 2017 to come up with an interim report following up on Action 1, and they wanted it by March 2018 because they said that the Action 1 work couldn't wait until 2020. Work really started on the multilateral solution, and that evolved into the two-pillar work plan, which you know countries endorsed in January 2020. And then there was a political agreement in October 2021 on the two pillars. So let me just tell you what the two pillars are. I've written about this so much that I almost can say it in my sleep. Pillar 1's components are Amount A, a taxing right for market jurisdictions over some of the residual profits that the very largest, most profitable M&Es make, even without permanent establishment. Amount A requires a multilateral convention to work because uh, it's about the allocation of taxing rights. And that convention requires countries to withdraw their digital services taxes and other unilateral measures to tax digital activities, you know, because the idea is that uh, Amount A was supposed to kind of replace these unilateral measures that countries were kind of implementing to kind of get at this main problem of taxing companies that are doing business without physical presence. So the countries also agreed on a moratorium on new DSTs uh, until the multilateral convention was finalized, and that's, was, that was set to expire on December 31st. Another component, Pillar 1, includes Amount B, which would streamline and simplify transfer pricing for baseline marketing and distribution transactions. And there are also some tax certainty mechanisms in, baked into Pillar 1 as well. Pillar 2, meanwhile, sets up a minimum taxation framework to make sure that large M&Es pay an, e- an effective tax rate of 15%, no matter where they operate. And they achieve this primarily through the global anti-base erosion rules, which are also called the GLOBE rules. Which I always wrestle with that acronym, that, uh, that acronym because I, I'm like, it should be GLEABE. <laughs> it's not a proper acronym. <laughs> I, I am fully on board with you. <laughs> anyway, so they're called the GLOBE rules. Um, and so countries can also adopt domestic minimum top-up taxes as long as they produce the same results as the GLOBE rules. So those are the two pillars in a nutshell. I can't help but notice the correlation of dates here with other things going on in the world. How was it covering this project during a time when nobody was really traveling anymore? Well, I think the the wonders of technology, actually, uh, ironically, the digital activity that we're sort of talking about actually was really key in, in communicating out what the current thinking was on these two pillars. There are a lot of virtual consultations, virtual co- press conferences, everything was virtual, which I think made it hard for the delegates themselves when they're trying to come to some political agreement on these two pillars. But it made it easier for less developed countries and it made it, made it easier for them to communicate during these meetings. So, yeah, I didn't, didn't get to travel a lot, but I got to travel a lot virtually. Now, what step followed after the countries came together for the October 2021 agreement? I should probably note that not everybody in the inclusive framework actually agreed on this. Uh, there was a handful of countries that said, now we can't sign on to this. But, but you know, the, the work just continued anyway. So what happened was Pillar 2 seemed to be a lot more developed. It was a lot more advanced than Pillar 1. Uh, so a lot of countries really focus on Pillar 2. The OECD published GLOBE model rules in December 2021. And then the EU actually uh, took a step and published a draft Pillar 2 directive, kind of signaling that, you know, the EU was on board with Pillar 2. And then there was a bunch of consultations on Pillar 1's main features. And the OECD also issued commentary and administrative guidance for Pillar 2. And then with that package of Pillar 2 stuff, countries started implementing the Pillar 2 rules. So where do things stand now? 
So in July, the majority of Inclusive Framework members backed a statement on the OECD's two-pillar plan that confirmed agreement on the draft text of a Pillar 1 multilateral convention and on extending the digital services tax moratorium until December 31st, 2024. But that moratorium requires that a minimum of 30 jurisdictions representing at least 60% of ultimate parent entities of MEs in scope of Mount A, it requires them to sign the MLC before the end of the year. So the Inclusive Framework decided to publish the draft text of the Multilateral Convention in October, and then the U.S. Treasury started publicly consulting on the text. So that sort of made people think, well, maybe they're not going to be able to sign this Pillar 1 Multilateral Convention by the end of the year, like as planned, because the U.S. was consulting and their consultation doesn't actually end until December 11th. So there were questions like, okay, what does that mean for that DST moratorium? Because they're facing a precipice of facing tons of tons of DSTs, you know. So I I understand that the U.S. is now working on getting another DST moratorium extension. So that is where things kind of stand with Pillar 1. And uh, the OECD, you know, for Pillar 2, Pillar 2 is already kind of a reality. Uh, A lot of countries have started implementing Pillar 2 rules with a lot of those rules starting on January 1st. So we are facing a whole new world of minimum taxation uh, starting in January, which is gonna be interesting. And the OECD, meanwhile, is also, they're also working on a lot of Pillar 2 guidance to help companies and to help taxpayers and tax administrations you know, administer these rules. So yeah, that's where we are now. So what is it like covering this phase of these developments? What really occupies your time as you're trying to put together stories? Yeah, so keeping track of all of these countries and their Pillar 2 legislation has been really hard because it seems like almost every day there's something, you know, some country is either introducing rules, um, proposing rules, consulting on rules, making some kind of statement on Pillar 2. So it's been kind of hard to keep track of everything. So that has been kind of difficult. Pillar 1, what's interesting about that is it sort of has a little bit of a a political intrigue, like a, will will countries or will they will they sign or will they not? You know, are they going to get the uh, text finalized in time? Are there going to be DST springing up everywhere in 2024? It's, it's it's an interesting time for me. So, what is next for the two pillar project? Everyone's still waiting to see if the multilateral convention text can be finalized and open for signature. By the end of the year, no, maybe not by the end of the year, actually, probably early next year. I think early next year is like sort of the target, tentative target. Uh, meanwhile, countries are starting to ready their DSTs just in case the multilateral convention doesn't become a thing. Canada already has a legislation proposed for a digital services tax to take effect um, possibly January 1st or at a date of the government's choosing. So... We'll see what happens there. And on Pillar 2, the OECD expects to release a bunch of new guidance by the end of the year, including anti-arbitrage rules, because apparently a lot of people or a lot of companies are starting to think of ways to game the Pillar 2 rules. So that's kind of interesting. And yeah, so I mean, we're going to see a lot of Pillar 2 guidance coming out at the end of the year. Now, I guess my last question is, what's next for you? you? You've been covering this for so long. These projects are in this implementation phase. Are there subjects in tax that you would like to cover that you haven't had a chance to yet? Oh, that's a good question. Tax. Well, you know, actually, I think environmental taxation, this is actually my, my colleague's beat. 
But uh, I, you know, I would like to do more on that because it's such a pressing issue. I actually think that they should have probably, this is my personal opinion, it seems that maybe more efforts were, should be directed at saving the world, you know, you know from, from climate change. I mean, taxation of sports stars, that'd be kind of fun, you know, <laughs> or like celebrities. Mm -hmm. That'd be kind of fun. So you could sort of merge your fashion experience yes. into a tax. Is there a way we can get something in there about meat? You know, possibly because you want to tax the meat industry for producing a lot of carbon emissions, right? There you go. Or a lot of gas, a lot of like, what is it? Methane? Methane, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. methane, the cows, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, why not? I mean, the sky's the limit at this point. <laughs> well, whatever you choose to do, I'm looking forward to it. Stephanie, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me again. And now, coming attractions. Each week we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Taxnets Federal, Robert Kovacev and Omar Hussein analyzed the ability of generative AI to improve efficiency in tax administration and conserve IRS resources. Jeffrey Schwartz explains how the Moore case is about due process. In Tax Note State, three Taft, Statinius, and Hollister practitioners examine the ultimate destination rule under the Ohio Commercial Activity Tax. Three Grant Thornton practitioners explore salt considerations for the technology industry. In Tax Notes International, Ruth Mason reviews the advocate general opinion in the case against Ireland for granting illegal state aid to Apple. David Rosenblum and Josiah Child consider the potential consequences of the U.S. Supreme Court's eventual decision in Moore v. United States. And finally, in featured analysis, Nana Amasarfo discusses the global implementation of the OECD's Automatic Exchange of Information Framework. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at TaxNotes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.